Nelson Mandela's health's been uh, in the news a lot lately, hasn't it? Uh, the 94-year-old's been in hospital for the last three weeks and ever since he has been, every news bulletin you turn on, there's always been an update in how he's been getting on. And the world's interest in Mandela is, of course, because by any standard, the guy has lived an extraordinary life. As one British newspaper has put it, Nelson Mandela has gone from terrorist to tea with the Queen. During the 50s and 60s, he, he was a terrorist. It sounds funny to say that because he's so loved nowadays, but he was. He started a military group in South Africa which bombed government buildings. Uh, people were killed. He went overseas to train in guerrilla warfare, uh, all of which led to his arrest, his conviction, and his life sentence to life imprisonment for sabotage and conspiracy. But after 27 years in prison, Nelson Mandela was unconditionally released. He was effectively pardoned, which in and of itself was an amazing event. But as it turned out, that was only the beginning of things. Within four years of being released from prison, Mandela was elected president of the country that had imprisoned him. And ever since that, the guy has become one of the most loved public figures in the world. He has received over 250 awards, including the Nobel Peace Prize. He has met with just about every world leader that there is. Barack Obama's over there now saying what an inspiration Mandela was to him. A recent global study found that Nelson Mandela is, in fact, the world's most respected and trusted individual. And the turning point of it all was the 11th of February 1990 when, in an event that was telecast around the world, Nelson Mandela walked free from prison after being unconditionally pardoned. And that's what set off a whole train of events that would lavish the guy with honour upon honour upon honour. Now, friends, I'm telling you all this because what happened to Nelson Mandela in his life, it's actually not a bad image to have in our heads of what happens to us when God pardons us. Because as Romans 1, 2, 4 has already pointed out to us earlier this year, God is prepared to pardon us. Uh, We all, we've been told in Romans, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We deserve to be punished, but God's prepared to free us from that pardon. And Romans has described that in terms of God justifying us. That's the word that's been used. We, We are justified by God. But when we are justified by God, when God pardons us, it's just like the events in Nelson Mandela's life. It actually, it's actually just the start of things. Because having been justified by God, it now triggers in motion a whole avalanche of honours and blessings and privileges that God now lavishes on us. Which is exactly what today's passage from Romans is all about. Did you notice the phrase that popped up two times in the reading? Have a look at the start of verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have, and then it goes on to describe what we have. Look again at verse 9. Look at how that starts. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we? And it goes on to describe some more things. You see what's happening in this reading? After 
chapters 1 to 4 in Romans explaining that we can be pardoned by God, Romans is now taking us on a journey to see the extraordinary things that now happen to us as a result of being pardoned by God. And look, it's actually going to take seven chapters to work through all the wonderful things that happen to us. This next instalment in Romans that we're starting today that's going to run through to chapter 11, it's all about this sort of stuff. Because even the amazing things that happened to Nelson Mandela after his pardon, they pale into insignificance compared to the amazing things that happened to us after our pardon by God. And today in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gets the ball rolling with two particularly wonderful things that happened to us. The first being that we now have peace with God. Verse 1 again. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, please notice that those two verses are in the present tense. Okay, They're saying that as a Christian, you have peace with God now. That at this very moment, as you are sitting there, there is, there is serenity. There is calmness. There is tranquility. There is a lack of hostility. How did the children explain it? There is no fighting. There is harmony between you and the God of all the universe. The verse reminds us of how we get to enjoy this peace, that it's through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we gain access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. It's a very intense sentence, isn't it? Lots of ideas. It's effectively a summary of the last four chapters. It's reminding us that it's by faith. It's by trusting in what God has done for us through Jesus Christ that we're able to have this peace. Remember chapters 1 to 4, we've sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but God in his mercy has pardoned us through Christ dying in our place, to set us free from the punishment of our sins. It's not what we do, it's what Jesus has done. And when we trust in that phenomenal thing that Jesus has done, we gain access, verse 2 says, to now stand in God's grace. It's a very bold image, really, isn't it? Able to stand before God. Don't have to cower in shame in front of him. Don't have to cringe before God in guilt. Don't have to sheepishly hide your face in discomfort from him. You can confidently stand before the God of all the universe. That's mind-boggling. The famous American evangelist Billy Graham tells the story of how he was once driving through a small southern town in the States um, when he was pulled over for speeding. As is the habit in small um, town, southern towns in America, he was immediately taken to the local courthouse where he appeared before the local judge. Billy Graham pleaded guilty. He had been speeding. The judge fined him, but after passing sentence, the judge actually recognised the guy and thought, hang on, this is, this, is Billy, this is the famous Billy Graham in front of me. And so the judge paid the fine out of his own money for Billy Graham and then took Billy Graham home for a steak dinner and to meet the family. And Billy Graham used to say, that's how God treats repentant sinners. He's not only paying the penalty, he invites us home. That's extraordinary. Actually, it's way more extraordinary than the Billy Graham story because he was treated the way he was because at the time the guy was famous, he was well known. Who the heck are we? 
compared to the true and living God. We are nobodies. I'll tell you who we are. We're sinners who fall short of the glory of God. We're pipsqueaks shaking our pathetic little fists at the God of all the universe from a speck of dust in a little galaxy in the universe. And yet, the Lord God Almighty visits the speck, pays the penalty for us, and then invites us to relax and be at ease and at peace at his place. (laughs) It is beyond belief, really. And it's not surprising that Paul goes on to say that it should make us rejoice. Verse 2 again, the last bit this time. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Interesting phrase, that isn't it? What does it mean to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? It's sort of a little abstract and hard to get your head around. I think I've got a bit of a sense of it because of something that happened to me quite a few years ago. Now, I've mentioned this before, so if you've heard the story, I hope you'll forgive me for that. But I think it does help us to sort of see what Paul is getting at here. It's actually quite a while ago when the Anglican Arch, the then Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, Harry Goodhue, came out to Dubbo to officially open a Holocaust uh, exhibition at the Dubbo Art Gallery. It was back when the art gallery, I don't know if you remember, was really small. It was just basically one room in the council chambers. And so they had this big marquee out in, uh, 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 outside the gallery at the lake, at the, uh, in the council car park. Heaps of people turned out to this event. Anyway, I went down to see Harry Goodhue uh, because, like lots of people in DPC, I got to know his son Philip when Philip Goodhue and his family lived here in Dubbo and they were members of DPC. So I'd actually met Harry Goodhue a few times. I'd been in his house in Sydney a few times. He and Philip and I had actually gone to the movies together to see Saving Private Ryan, not because I'm special, I just happened to be friends with his son. Anyway, here I am at what turns out to be a massive society do uh, at the art gallery. I can't get anywhere near Harry Goodhue. Uh, He is constantly surrounded by people who very clearly want to be near him and want to be seen to be near him. But Harry saw me over in the corner and raised his voice and said, Bryson, good to see you again. I was hoping you'd be here. And he pushed past all the other hangers-on and came over for a chat. And you see, for that brief moment, as everyone's heads turned to see who the heck I was... I got to share in the glory of the Archbishop of Sydney. (laughs) That's pathetic, isn't it? (laughs) And it is a pathetic parallel. But I wonder if that's something of what Paul is getting at here in verse 2. Can you imagine, can you just get a, a glimmer of sharing in the glory of the God who just spoke the word and every single thing you see in this world sprang into being. Can you get a glimpse of sharing in the glory of the true and living God without beginning and without end? The God before whom this entire world will tremble and bend the knee to. Can you begin to imagine sharing in that level of glory, of being seen to be at peace 
with him. That will take your breath away. No wonder Paul says we rejoice even in just the hope of that. And he goes on to say that, look, even sufferings can't take away that sort of rejoicing. Verse 3. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope's not going to disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Now this is a curious thing, isn't it? Why after talking about having peace with God and rejoicing over his why suddenly start to talk about suffering? What's the connection? I suspect the connection is that suffering can cause you to doubt whether or not you really are at peace with God. See, I mean, even amongst some Christian circles, is it not the case that even some Christians have this idea that if God is really with you, okay, if God is really on your side, then things won't go wrong in your life. You know, because if you and God are really tight, you know, if you are like that with God, then you've only got to ask him and he'll heal your sickness. He'll fix your marriage. He'll get rid of all your problems. The Bible never teaches that, okay? What the Bible teaches is what is being said here in Romans. Since we have been justified, we have peace with God. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. And whether or not you might be suffering doesn't change that. How difficult or not your life is, is not a sign of whether or not God likes you anymore. We have a secure peace with God here and now. Because you see, at just the right time, verse 6, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though possibly a good man might, uh, a good man's, someone might, for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And you see, friends, you see what Paul's getting at with all of this? Why is it that we have peace with God? Why is it that we have peace with God? It's because we've been justified. It's because of Jesus. It's because of what Jesus has done. And so how do we know that we have peace with God? Well, is it, is it by looking around and seeing how easy our life may or may not be? Is suffering or lack of suffering a measure of how much peace you have with... No way! The cross is the measure of how much peace with God we now enjoy because that's the clear demonstration of God's love for us. It's the fact that Christ died for us while we were sinners. And with that perspective in mind, being confident of things between us and God since we have been justified, if we do suffer... Well, we're able to do what verse 3 describes. We're able to draw on God's strength and his care and his encouragement to get through struggles in life by working on our perseverance and character and causing us to hope all the more for the glory of God to fully arrive. Being confident that we have peace with God. Which really brings us to the second thing that Paul wants us to, wants to list out for us about what happens since we have been justified. For it's not only that we have peace with God and therefore we can rejoice even in sufferings. Since we have been justified, we also have been saved from God's wrath. Verse 9. 
Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now, at first, this sounds like Paul might be just repeating himself from earlier, doesn't it? You know, verse 1, since we've been justified, we have peace with God. Now it's just, since we've been justified, we've been saved from his wrath. Well, it almost could be sound like he's just two sides of the one coin, the positive and the negative. In one sense, that's true. But the thing to notice is that whereas verse 1 was all about having peace with God in the present, verse 9 is all about peace with God into the future. How much more shall we be saved? It's a future tense. In other words, verse 9 is now pointing out that on that last terrible day of God's wrath, when this world will be wrapped up and all sin and all unrepentant sinners removed, on that terrifying day, since we have been justified, we have nothing to fear. And that is no small blessing. Heck, I can remember still being scared about having to go and see the headmaster whenever I do something wrong at school. Or, you know, you muck up at home and, and mum uses the old, just wait till your father gets home. That, those things, the prospect of those punishments used to scare me enough. Can you begin to consider the terror of facing the burning anger of the God of all the earth? Scripture describes it as God roaring from on high, high and the very fabric of earth itself shuddering in dread, of people begging mountains to fall on them, to try and hide from God. The true and living God can inflict more pain and terror than you can possibly begin to imagine. And since we have been justified, we will not have to face it. And if that doesn't fill you with incredible relief, you just haven't thought enough about it. Either that or you have no idea who you're dealing with with God. Paul certainly knows who he's dealing with. And so it all again ends in rejoicing. Verse 10. For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And we're back at rejoicing again, aren't we? Since we have been justified, we have peace with God and suffering can't even change that, so we rejoice. And now since we have been justified, we look forward to future peace with God, having been saved from the day of wrath, and so we again rejoice. Are you starting to see what this passage wants us to do this morning? It is to rejoice in God. And what does that look like? Does it mean we just sing a song at the end and walk out with smiling faces? Well, well, it's here that it might be helpful to notice something that's not immediately obvious depending on what translation you might have. Because the word translated rejoice in the old NIV, which is what I've got and which I suspect many of us have, it's actually the word boast. So there in verse 11 and even back up in verses 2 and 3, it actually, it actually says, we therefore boast in God. 
Now, I'm not sure why the old NIV, and look, even the usually reliable ESV puts in rejoice. Uh, the new NIV puts boast in verses 2 and 11, but misses the one in verse 3. I'm not sure what's going on. Whatever the case, it is very clearly the word boast. And that is significant within Romans because boasting is something that Paul has already talked a lot about in Romans. He's actually talked a lot about what not to boast in. Back in chapters 2, 3 and 4, Paul's been telling the Jews not to boast in the Old Testament law. He's been telling us to not boast in things that we do, but instead trust in what Jesus has done on the cross. And now you see in this passage, and pretty well for the first time in the letter, Here's what we are to boast in, that in the light of being justified and having peace with God and having been saved from his wrath, in the light of all of that, we don't boast in anything. You do boast in God. Give him the credit for all of this. Live a life that draws attention to God and how good he is, which may mean, for example, Tomorrow morning, deliberately making an effort to turn up at work with a positiveness and a joy. It may mean, you know, try and resist all the grumbling and the gossip that usually starts on a Monday. And when someone asks you, well, why are you in such a good mood? Just tell them, well, at church, we've actually started thinking about all the good things God has done for us because of Jesus. And I'm trying to help keep other things in perspective because of that. Do something that would draw attention to God. Why not do a random act of generosity for someone this week? Just a random act of generosity simply because God's been so generous to us. And maybe even let them know, if it's appropriate, that that's why you're doing it. What about working hard at being forgiving to other people this week? Because God has been very lavish in his forgiveness of us. How about working hard this week to be humble and less self-righteous towards other people this week, knowing that as Christians, we're all the same with nothing to boast about and it's all about what God has done. Why not this week, maybe if things don't go all that well, maybe even if suffering occurs, try and remind yourself that, that you actually have peace with God. And with that perspective, try and press on, knowing that your hope in God won't disappoint you and one day you will share in his glory. Because, friends, by God's grace, by his doing, extraordinary things have happened to us. Nelson Mandela may have gone from terrorist to tea with the Queen. Uh, Since we've been justified, we have gone from rebel to relaxing with the king, relaxing with the king, the divine king of all the earth. And we can confidently stand in his presence. And it's nothing we've done. It's all he's doing. So boast about that. Boast about God. In that, live a life that draws attention to what he has done. I'll pray. Father, it is extraordinary what you have done for us through Christ. Thank you that since we have been justified through Jesus' death in our place, 
thank you that, that we can even be speaking to you now. The Lord of all the universe. And we speak to you as your children. Brought, brat, brought into your family as the sheep of your pasture. Father, thank you that even as we go into this week, nothing can separate us from your love and that your love is so clearly demonstrated to us in that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Father, thank you for the ease and the confidence that we now enjoy with you as your people. And Father, we give you all the praise for that. Help us this week to boast about you. Amen.